Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. Jody Radorin was a longtime reporter and editor for the New York Times, including a time as the bureau chief in Jerusalem. She was also deputy metro editor and associate managing editor for audience strategy. She joined the forward in September 2019. The forward was founded in 1897, initially a Yiddish language newspaper and was published only in that language for nearly 100 years. Now it's digital, a website with online reporting. The Forward's print publication stopped publishing in early 2019 as the paper went through staff cuts prevalent throughout the newspaper industry. However, it is still a highly influential news source in America. First of all, uh, Jody, thank you for joining us. Happy Hanukkah. Where does the Forward fit within the journalistic ecosphere and what made it appealing for you to come work at? Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. And that's a great question. Um, and then the the forward sits at, um, I think, at the intersection of a few different parts of the journalistic ecosystem. One incredibly important part is that we are a nonprofit uh, news organization, digital only, all digital, digital first, and in the in the public interest, we are uh, we we fit that model that is a kind of new and growing model. Um, that is trying to fill in some of the gaps left by the various disruptions in our industry, especially in local journalism. And I see us in that mode and um, there's a lot of exciting stuff happening in that space. We are also the leading Jewish uh, voice, American Jewish journalistic voice. We have been for a really long time. And I would say we're also the kind of journalism outlet that's really about breadth breadth of the range of our report, which includes culture and news and lifestyle and features. And of course, Yiddish, we still publish in Yiddish, but also breadth in terms of perspective. Um, We are all about being a platform for civil discourse on issues that divide our community. We want every American Jew to both see themselves reflected in our pages, but also really challenged by them. So we do not take a particular line on Israel or intermarriage or any of the issues that divide us, but we want really to to seed all perspectives. So we have Orthodox Jews, we have Sephardic Jews, we have Jews of color, we have the voices of young millennial Jews with mixed identities, and we have the voices of, of older Yiddishists in our pages too. So we're really trying to be a big tent where everybody can find a foothold um, in what makes their Jewish identity, what makes their Jewish identity and then makes it interesting. And what appealed in terms of you going from the Times to here? Yes, we're still trying to figure that out in a way. Now, I, so you leave the most successful uh, journalistic organization in the world to go try to save one that is really struggling. And it really was about impact and meaning, I guess, Mark. It seemed to, as I, when I, was, I, was, I had a great career at the Times. I was there for 21 years. I got to do amazing things there. And I was involved in a lot of really exciting and important conversations about digital innovation in my last few years. But um, while I think I affected those conversations, it, it was clear to me that if I wasn't in them, the Times would be doing just fine anyway, as it has continued to do since I left. And I, at the same time, I was just increasingly exposed to the crisis in the journalism industry, in local journalism, and in places like The Forward, where they hadn't really found a digital model that was sustainable, that worked. And I thought that when they, uh, particularly when they ended print and decided to go all digital, and when I got to know the CEO publisher and, and what she was thinking about 
innovation and speaking to the next generation, I just thought, well, here is an opportunity to take an amazing legacy institution with a strong, proud brand and reinvent it. And it just seemed like that was an opportunity of a lifetime. Plus it was a chance to take everything I'd been working on professionally for my whole life and kind of meld it up with my like personal life in a more um, meaningful way since I've been an engaged and committed Jew since I was a kid. How has your relationship with Judaism and how you view uh, Judaism changed since you became the, the editor-in-chief? Oh, that's a great question too. And I don't think I've been asked quite that. I mean, one thing that's happened is I write a weekly newsletter slash column and it's fairly personal. I mean, I just wrote about like thinking about um, miracles on Hanukkah and how we celebrate Hanukkah. And last week I wrote about my kids' Zoom B'nai Mitzvah. So I, I, you know, I'm a public Jew in a way that I hadn't been before. I'm kind of engaging with Jewish issues on a public stage. And I mix my kind of intellectual reporting perspective with a, a more personal, you know, living as a Jewish mom kind of perspective in a more regular way. I also get to say things like Bikitsor, which means in short at work, which is always fun. So there, I, I go to your website and there are two different ways to go with your coverage. One is the hard news stories. And just to start with that, and I don't profess to have any sort of expertise or, or strong knowledge in these beyond what I might hear on NPR or see in a headline somewhere with what kind of nuance Will your coverage be for something like uh, what happened in the last couple of days between Israel and Morocco? So um, I'm going to switch gears on you in terms of an example, because to be honest, the, the question of how to cover Israel is one that's like flummoxing us a little bit right now. There are so many English language sources now directly reported from Israel that I think our readers, it's a little unclear what our value add is on reported pieces from Israel. We do run a lot of opinion about Israel that does very well. But in general, I think our readers get their basic news from about Israel from Haaretz or the Times of Israel. And, and that seems kind of okay. I think there's a more fertile opportunity for us elsewhere. But one thing I was thinking about was it was just recently the anniversary of the Jersey City shooting. And we won an award for our coverage of that last year. And it was because our knowledge of the community and of what it meant to be a new Orthodox or Hasidic community in an urban setting, I think allowed us, and also because we had a Yiddish speaking reporter who did some of the interviews in Yiddish, I think those things really allowed us to do a rounded portrait of the aftermath of that murder that even though the New York Times and everybody else was also covering that story, I think ours was unique and stood out because of that nuanced as that sort of a mix of an insider outsider perspective. So, so you're looking for stories that you can, I guess, get close to in that regard in terms of your coverage. Yeah, and bring, I'm bring important context to and write about from the perspective of what an American Jewish audience needs to know and how to think about it. It's not the same as what a fully broad mainstream audience needs to think about. I mean, we do, of course, have non-Jewish readers all the time, and we try to make sure that our coverage is accessible to someone, regardless of what knowledge of Judaism they have. But we also, you know, want to bring the connections to, to a sort of deeper understanding of somebody's Judaism. We've had a lot of coverage, for example, of Kamala Harris's mixed family and what that means for all the mixed families, mixed race, mixed religion families in our readership. And it's been really resonant, I think, with a lot of people. And it's not like other people aren't covering that, but covering it from the perspective of 
Jews and mixed families is different from just a sort of more neutral or more um, outsider perspective. Along with that, the other aspect of the site, and I found this fascinating, and I just want to quote uh, briefly an interview that you did with Politico, where they asked, what's a trend going on in the United States or abroad that doesn't get enough attention? And you said secular religion, like people building community or identity through Jewish food, singing groups, meal trains, uh, Sundays with Love, which you, you just wrote a, a column about. It, it struck me that there are so many different ways to identify as Jewish, and there are so many different ways to cover Jewish culture. And you see them very much uh, in full force on your site. So I was wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah, I mean, exactly. So it's funny because we're not a religious publication. In fact, for most of our history, we've been sort of like, uh, what's the right word, uh, zealously secular. I mean, in the, in the early days of the socialist Yiddish forward, it was, its secularism was a big part of its identity. Um, you know, Jew, Judaism or Jewishness is, is not um, this parallel necessarily to other religions because it's also really an ethnicity or culture, or some people would say a nationality or a peoplehood. Um, this is all very, can be very controversial if it's framed wrong, but um, yeah, we have a robust um, food, section or food vertical that we're developing and putting more and more investment in. We have a great food leader in our national editor, Rob Eshman. We also have, um, of course, the Yiddish. And then our, in our culture department, it's really like it's high, low, and it's all over the place. I mean, one of my favorite stories that we published just this morning is the backstory of the new David Diggs song and um, video, Puppy for Hanukkah. Hopefully people who are listening to this will have watched this. It's this like incredibly cool song and it's the video has all these really interesting kids sort of rapping and lip syncing to this like hilarious song about getting a puppy for Hanukkah. So we did a story about it when it first came out and then we went a little deeper to figure out, to find out more about how did the idea come about? Who were these kids? Why was David Diggs not on the screen, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the for for a lot of people that song is the most Jewish thing they'll do all year, and that's fine. <laughs> I also want to give a shout out because I have noticed that, uh, and I actually googled it after I saw one story on your site, and googled and realized that there were three or four going back. That you've had ex extensive coverage of the Netflix series Big Mouth on your website, and I was uh, impressed with that. It was interesting to see uh, because I think the the way that that the person that, that wrote the piece connected with the show was what you were talking about. It was, it was yeah. bringing a, a different kind of perspective. Are there I want to say, Mark, back in the spring, we had a ton of articles about the series Unorthodox. And I also did a Zoom event with, about the series Unorthodox. And what was really neat about that was the way that we were able to connect this piece of pop culture that was really you know, getting a ton of attention and a ton of engagement in the early days of the pandemic with the reality, the real life experience of people who, who, who live through the story of unorthodox, which is of a Hasidic woman who leaves the community and how complicated and difficult that is. So we had on our Zoom event, we had people who worked on the show and people who worked with these kind of refugees from the um, orthodox community. And many, many of the articles that we wrote, and we did write quite a lot. People are very interested in things that um, have to do with Hasidic sex. But 
they they really were weaving between culture and and real life or between you know entertainment and real life in a way that i thought was fascinating and that was so clearly landing with readers and who are your readers uh, i know that you're very into audience engagement from your previous <laughs> uh, from your previous work who do you find that's that's working that's reading uh, your your website now well, I wish we knew more about it. We need some. We need more tools and more resources to devote to understanding our audience better. Um, but we have we have had about two million users a month, unique users a month, and about a third of them are under thirty-five. They are concentrated in the Northeast, but they are increasingly spread around the country. And I would say, you know, they spread around the country in the ways that you'd expect um, in the biggest states and in the states with the biggest Jewish populations. Um, and also they vary a little bit with the news cycle. But we have also a lot of, in New York especially, we have a lot of devoted readers who are not Jewish and who have counted on the forward for years as a political voice of the American Jewish community and they kind of know it as a, a place that they can understand the community better. Um, we have a, we've almost doubled our core audience, our newsletter audience this year um, or over the last two years. But this year it's gone from like 70 or 80,000 to 150,000. So that audience is your more engaged Jews who really are reading us frequently and you know, coming to our events. But we, it's, it's kind of all over the map. I have to say, I get email from people all over the country, all over the political spectrum, all over the religious spectrum. And that's what's kind of cool. And what do they want? Everybody wants something totally different and contradictory. <laughs> but I think mostly a lot of what they want is to like be heard. You know, I mean, I, I have the same experience at the New York Times. I write back to everybody who emails me and they're always quite surprised and mm -hmm. quite thrilled to actually be connecting up with someone who's making journalistic decisions and who's telling stories. What are your um, story idea meetings like? Well, they're all, of course, on Zoom, um, which we're getting very creative about. We've started, we've just instituted a new tradition of each day we have someone either share a Jewish joke or a poem of any kind. And the unscientific result so far is that like two thirds of the people choose poetry. I will <laughs> be reporting back more on that later. And they're, they're you know, they're, we just try to really like think about what's popping in the news that and how do we, how can we, what's our particular take on it? I mean, a lot of times we are a small staff. And we are nimble and we are creative and we are passionate, but we don't have a lot of hands. So we always want to make sure that we have a strong forward angle on something. And we don't want to repeat what everyone else is going to do. So we're looking for what's the thing that everybody's talking about and what can our unique spin on it be? Back to hard news for a second. What was it like to cover things the week of November 3rd? Well, <laughs> it's a good question. I mean, I wrote, I think I wrote myself five pieces that week, um, which was definitely more than I've written since I was a full-time reporter. You know, and it was, I mean, again, that the, the challenge of the election is there's a ton of Jewish stories, but the main story isn't, you know, that Jewish. So it was to really find what is our angle on this? What is our best take on it? So we were, um, and then of course there was a, the hurry up and wait problem that all journalists faced and that I went through myself in, in 2000 as well. So we just, it was, it was a little bit like, um, you know, trying to, you, you have all this adrenaline and you have to kind of keep it going in a marathon instead of a sprint. I think probably the smartest thing we did was on Friday morning when it seemed pretty, it seemed very much like Joe Biden was going to be confirmed as president-elect that day. So we started making some calls to a very broad range of Jews to ask them kind of what that felt like. And 
we published it that day and then kind of tweaked it a little bit when it when the result actually was confirmed the next day. And I feel like that was a really good piece that captured the emotion of the week and of the moment. What do you want the coverage that you're publication brings uh, to be moving forward? I think, I mean, I guess a couple of different things. Look, the most important thing to me is that we build a relationship with readers and that's something that they want to come back to and that they feel they can rely on. And that there's going to, on a regularly regular basis, be something that they're really interested in and that they really remember, that they'll take with them. And that might be a podcast. It might be an article. It might be a Zoom event. It might be a newsletter. Um, it might be a mix of all those things. Uh, we have a strong tradition of accountability journalism, investigative journalism. We did some of that this year. We need to do more of that. So we're going to be kind of doubling down in that vein. And I think as we, as we move forward, I like, I would love using the, the word forward. As we move forward, we do need to keep working on kind of making sure we have that distinct forward story, forward voice, and that we want readers to increasingly be able to recognize and rely on that oh, that's a forward story. I want people to be able to say that and to make sure that we have them all the time on the topics that they're interested in. What's the best thing about covering Judaism? You know, Judaism and journalism have so much in common, like the, the, the value of storytelling, the value of debate and dissent. So that is a great thing. I think the neck, the, 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 the science or art of journalism applied to a community and a world in which those values are also upheld. Um, also Jews in general, I hate to stereotype, but we do like to talk and um, share our opinions. And that works well for journalists. I found that um, in Israel, it turns out Palestinians also very much like to talk about the news. So this is, makes it easier to do our job. People have a lot to say. They have a lot of stories. Um, they frequently are in conflict, which is also good for journalists. And they really value, I think, information and storytelling and news. So they like, eat it up. When it's done well, they eat it up. So you've worked in some high-profile places. And as such, when things happen, breaking news, all sorts of things can, can occur in journalism. Looking at things that have happened uh, throughout, throughout your career in hindsight, is there an experience that you could share with the, particularly the students that are listening in which you learn from a mistake? One of the things I learned in Jerusalem over the four years where there's just incredible scrutiny on your work was the importance of just vigilant fact-checking. And I just, you know, you work so hard to get the big contours of the story right, but you have to work equally hard to get the small things right, to get the spelling right, because otherwise your credibility is shot. And that's all you have really at the end of the day is your credibility. I ended up going to Jerusalem in part because I didn't get a job I wanted. And I raised my hand for Jerusalem. People were very receptive. And then it turned out that the job wasn't going to be open for another year or so. And they decided they weren't ready to commit to me going. And I decided in my fit of peak not to study Arabic because they wouldn't commit to me going. And that was really dumb because I ended up getting the job and not knowing any Arabic. And I would have been much better at the job. And the New York Times was ready to pay for me to study Arabic. And I just was too busy being like mad about not getting a promise in advance. And it, it just ended up hurting myself and didn't hurt anybody else. You've sure. had a lot of different and very interesting roles. What advice would you give to a future journalist on managing their career path? Great question. I, I, I am a believer in generalism, although I think increasingly we do live in a more specialized world um, than when I was coming up. But I think 
What you really want to do in the early part of your career is hopefully find a relationship with an editor who's good and then try to do the stuff that that editor needs done. That will, if you're good at it and if you can consistently fulfill the thing that that editor that's driving that editor bonkers that they need most, then you will have an ally forever and they will continue to give you more and more opportunities. I can relate to that, uh, certainly. Last, last question. Is there a journalism organization that you would like to salute? Well, the Institute for Nonprofit News, I think, is a really important journalism organization. And Report for America must be the most exciting thing going in the journalism world today. It is growing like gangbusters. And it, it, what it's doing, it's sort of on the model of the Peace Corps or Teach for America. It is putting young reporters into newsrooms that need them, local newsrooms that need more resources. And it is helping to train them, helping to select them and helping to finance their salaries. And so it's giving, now I think it's up to 300 newsrooms across the country, um, extra help and giving something like more than a thousand journalists, I think young journalists, a one or two year fellowship in those newsrooms with real, uh, real world experience. And I just think it's great. And um, I hope it continues to grow. I hope the forward gets uh, fellows soon. And um, I think it's a really exciting organization. Yep, they just, they just announced their new uh, placement of uh, reporters across the country and it's phenomenal uh, what they're doing. Uh, Jody, thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, best of luck moving forward. Thank you, Mark. That Jody Redorin, editor-in-chief of The Forward who lives in New Jersey. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershaw, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org slash podcast and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. These are the words of some of the highest-ranking leaders at the New York Times, Dean Baquet, Joe Kahn, and James Bennett. Jody has been one of the leaders of our own transformation, someone who went from star reporter and foreign correspondent to the editor who helped deepen our understanding of readers and their needs. She has been one of the most creative leaders at a time when we needed innovation, someone who pushed us to take risks and think larger. One thing I should note about the forward is that it is different from many of the other groups that we talked about on this podcast. The forward operates on a subscription model. You get two free articles per month, but otherwise it costs $60 per year. What appealed to me about the forward was the all aspects approach it took to covering Judaism. And I think that that's so important to consider when effectively covering religion and I like their personal touch. To learn more about The Forward, go to forward.com, F-O-R-W-A-R-D. The Journalism Salute is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Robert Cole, who taught journalism at my alma mater, Trenton State College, the College of New Jersey, for more than 30 years. I don't have an anecdote about Dr. Cole and religion. Instead, I'll share one on how Dr. Cole liked to talk. If you visited Dr. Cole during his office hours, you were assured of two things, a long wait and a longer conversation that went in many directions, but always ended with you feeling better about yourself. The wait was always worth it. I haven't done this yet on this podcast. I want to give a shout out to a group that's hurting a bit now, a journalism group, D3 Sports. For those unfamiliar with the different levels of college sports, NCAA Division Three is no scholarship. 
These are student athletes who are students first, athletes second. They don't have private jets, super stadiums, crazy boosters, TV deals. The students are playing because they love sports. The D3 Sports family of websites has covered Division Three for more than 20 years. They're an important part of what Division Three is. They tell stories that are worth learning about. I wrote and broadcast for them in the early days of their website. It barely paid, but it was great experience. I got a lot of practice interviewing. I got to broadcast national championships, and I had a great editor in Pat Coleman. Division three is one of many things that the pandemic has basically shut down. This isn't the SEC or Big Ten that can strong arm its way into playing. The Division three schools don't have the resources to play, and they know that it's largely not a great idea to play. The D3 sports sites have lost 93% of their traffic because there's no D3 sports. This isn't some huge for-profit enterprise. No one's making big bucks here. They're hurting, and they could use a little help. If you're in the donating spirit this holiday season, by all means, donate to places that support essential health care workers and other entities that need it. But if you have a little left over, head over to d3hoops.com or d3football.com and send it their way. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. If you're interested in following along with us, follow us on Twitter at Journalism Salute, S-A-L-U-T. There are more episodes to come. Thank you for tuning in.